To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. On the program today, no, I am not ready to rumble. Thank you very much. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Tuesday today, the 23rd of January. Good to have you along, everybody. Let us, as we begin today... Tick backwards through the week's economic calendar. Inflation will be in the headlines Friday. The Fed's favorite, you know, you love it, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. A first look at gross domestic product for the end of last year comes to us Thursday. Purchasing Managers Index tomorrow. That's a supply chain thing. Today has been a corporate earnings kind of day led by Netflix, which reported fourth quarter earnings of just shy of a billion dollars after the bell this afternoon and its best new subscriber pickup since the early days of the pandemic. The company, you might say, continues to body slam its competition, announcing today, as it did, a new 10-year deal with WWE World Wrestling Entertainment worth $5 billion. It puts Netflix in the ring, sorry, for the next battle in the streaming wars, live sports. Marketplace's Megan McCarty Carino gets us going. It's not always easy being a sports fan in the Big Easy, but Jonathan Barnes has stuck with his New Orleans teams through ups and downs and all the different streaming services. I do have Hulu. I have the package for that, which includes ESPN+. Plus. I have Apple TV. I have Amazon. I also have Peacock. In fact, Peacock was the only place he could find the NFL playoff game between the Miami Dolphins and the Kansas City Chiefs, a.k.a. Taylor Swift's boyfriend's team, earlier this month. Barnes doesn't, at the moment, have Netflix, but as a diehard WWE fan, he says he'll probably be adding that subscription, too, next year. And it kind of scares me to think that are we going to soon be in a future where you have to have these streaming platforms if you want to watch your favorite teams? And I think that would not be fair at all to the consumer. But as long as consumers are willing to play ball... The gloves have come off. Sorry, we're mixing a lot of sports metaphors here. Eric Sorensen is senior analyst with Parks Associates. Sports content drives eyeballs. Advertisers know it. Streaming services know it. And they'll pay big bucks to get in on it. Amazon Prime now has Thursday Night Football. Apple has pro soccer. From a streaming perspective, we find that those can drive big pops. Brendan Brady at market data firm Antenna says the audience for streaming live sports is growing rapidly, and sports fans who sign up for an event at the beginning of the season often come back for more. 
that user, if they're a super fan, is likely going to need that service. And so they'll stay subscribed. That Dolphins-Chiefs NFL game on Peacock attracted about 23 million viewers, the biggest live streaming event ever. But it had a smaller audience than other NFL playoff games, points out Ross Benish, senior analyst at eMarketer. It may have been the most streamed sporting event in U.S. history, but it was also the least watched NFL game that weekend. Even with that boost from all the Swifties. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. Wall Street today, I'm trying to think of a good wrestling, streaming, Taylor Swift turn of phrase here. It's not coming to me. We will still, though, have the details when we do the numbers. We were talking right at the end of the show yesterday about how consumers are slowly but apparently surely starting to feel better. The whole vibe session giving way to a vibe expansion thing. Well, while the vibes as we shop are getting better, the vibes in the office Zoom are still kind of off. According to some new data out from Gallup, only one in three American workers say they are engaged with their job. Less than half say they know what's expected of them at work. And apparently the most bummed out are middle managers who report more burnout and work-life balance issues than anybody else. Why? Marketplace Matt Levin, most definitely not a middle manager has this one. Okay, so being a middle manager has always kind of sucked. The execs above you get access to the corporate jet and big expense accounts. Meanwhile, you're the one that has to tell your direct report that clipping their toenails during a meeting is grossing out all the other team members, even if it is over Zoom. But to quote the Don Draper Mad Men School of Management, That's what the money is for! Gallup chief scientist Jim Harder says, Sure, compensation matters. But it's not going to make you clear on your role. It's not going to make you feel like you're recognized for good work. He says remote work has made things worse for managers and their subordinates. Managers, um, when when you have people in person, uh, you, you can all the informal conversations that happen that might clarify expectations more quickly. Plus, even if it does pay more, being promoted into a management position often makes the work itself less satisfying. Laurel McKenzie is a behavioral scientist at the business coaching company Coach Hub. They may be doing less of the technical work that they were doing when they were an individual contributor. So they're doing less of what they love and managing people doing the things that they love. McKenzie says part of the growing dissatisfaction in middle management could also be generational. Millennials are getting well into their 30s, and now they're becoming bosses themselves. I'm in my mid-30s. Like, what does that mean? Like, what am I doing? What am I doing with my whole life? And you start asking yourself all these big questions. Questions like, do I really have to respond to that Slack message at 8 p.m. about the nail clipping drama? Adam Waits at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management says to make middle managers more engaged in a hybrid work world, we should allow them to unplug. How do we let people go home from work at a reasonable time, disconnect at a reasonable time, not burden them with emails on the weekends, on vacations, after hours. Which is easier said than done. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. (music) 
Okay, quick. Total dollar value of retail sales of certified organic products in the U.S. market in 2022. Go. Nope. Higher. No, 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 no. Higher still. According to the Organic Trade Association, a record $67.6 billion in 2022, a dollar amount that has more than doubled over the past 10 years. But there are, of course, some hurdles to getting a slice of that market. To get one of those USDA organic seals on their products, farmers and food companies have to pass inspections by third-party certifiers, some of which are private companies, others are nonprofits, some are state agencies. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes drew the short straw of walking us through that process, and she did it at a chocolate factory in Brooklyn, New York. When Inspector Dovey Napperstick walks through the door of the Rocka Chocolate Factory in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn, he's hit with a wave of noise and an unmistakable scent. I feel like every time I'm here, my clothes smell like chocolate for the next few days. Napperstick works for Natural Food Certifiers, a company that's one of about 75 organizations that can grant the USDA organic seal. He's here to conduct the annual inspection for Raqqa to keep its seal. If you could show me kind of the entire process. Napperstick is talking to Raqqa's CJ Knowles, who shows him where the ingredients are stored. Huge sacks of cocoa beans, giant bins of flour, and a cabinet filled with different flavorings. Fruit juice powders, um, spices and herbs... Then Knowles leads us into a room where many surfaces have a fine dusting of cocoa powder. This is the room where we actually process down cocoa beans. Knowles shows the inspector how the chocolate is mixed, molded, and finally wrapped using a vintage machine made of brown metal. He also talks about pest control. Primary methods are glue traps, lights, pheromone traps, and a mating disruptor system. To keep organic certification, the company is expected to rely on natural processes and minimize its use of synthetic chemicals. In some inspections, Napperstick will take a sample of an ingredient or finished product and send it to a lab to check what substances are in it. The tour of the shop floor takes about an hour. The bulk of Napperstick's inspection, another four or five hours, takes place in front of a computer. There has to be records for every transaction, essentially. We kind of say, like, if there's no record of it, it never happened. All of the ingredients need to be certified organic. Napperstick chooses one and asks to see its certificate. So how many products would you say use organic freeze-dried strawberry? Napperstick is trying to make sure that the amount of strawberry Raqqa used lines up with the amount of chocolate it produced. Knowles has to prove the company isn't sneaking in any non-organic ingredients. It's the where did the mystery strawberry come from exercise. Knowles' spreadsheets are works of art, keeping track of ingredients, when chocolate was poured, wrapped, shipped. There are tabs, cross tabs, links galore. Honestly, this is forensic files. All of this seems like a huge pain in the patootie. But organic certification has helped Raqqa court large retailers that understand the power of the USDA organic seal. Nathan Hodge is the CEO and co-founder of Raqqa Chocolate. Very early on, we got into Whole Foods and getting that retailer was transformational to the business because of the number of doors that we were able to get in. Hodge says Raqqa pays several thousand dollars every year for its certification. Producers can apply for partial reimbursement from the USDA. Certified organic ingredients also generally cost more. All of that shows up in Raqqa's prices. A 1.8-ounce bar of chocolate starts at around $6. 
Hodge says the big disadvantage, though, is that he's met cocoa farmers who produce high-quality beans that aren't certified organic. So Raka can't use them. They're using organic practices. You know, there are just some places where it's hard to get certifiers. <laughs> the USDA is working with universities to encourage more people to become inspectors. In the meantime, Hodge says he plans to stick with organic certification despite the expense. The most costly thing would be <laughs> having to like switch over our production line between organic and non-organic. <laughs> The USDA notes that the growth of organic certification for farmers and companies has slowed in the last couple of years. That's despite the increasing popularity of organic food. In Red Hook, Brooklyn, I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. The Marketplace Morning Report is certified organic, I think. Anyway, check them out. All the business news you need to start your day. You want some of that chocolate Stephanie was just telling us about? There will be a trip to the grocery store involved, of course. And once you get there, you will see something many, many, many things actually immediately identifiable, but so normal they have become almost invisible. The humble barcode. Grocery stores, library books, concert tickets, and that package that just came in the mail, all of them barcoded. And while they are everywhere now, they haven't always been around and they haven't always looked the way they do. My name is Jordan Frith, and I'm the Pierce Professor of Professional Communication at Clemson University. And I'm the recent author of the book called Barcode. The first barcode that really, like, mattered came from the grocery industry. And the grocery industry had long been searching out ways to automate parts of the checkout process. So in the early 70s, they put together a committee to explore whether the barcode was like a possible way to change the processes in grocery store and reduce retail costs and improve inventory. And the first thing they had to do was decide if barcodes were viable. They decided yes. Then they had to decide on a barcode symbol. They asked for applicants and they narrowed it down to seven finalists for symbols. Six of them you wouldn't recognize as barcodes at all. One of them was the bullseye. There was another that looked like a sun. There was another that looked like a fan. And by the end, it was clear of those seven finalists that there were two frontrunners, the RCA bullseye or the IBM symbol. RCA was pushing really hard for their barcode to be adopted as this industry standard. There was a lot of worry from the symbol selection committee that if they didn't pick RCA it was going to slow barcode adoption because RCA actually threatened to pull out of the barcode industry completely if their symbol wasn't selected. However, in their very last meeting, they picked a symbol which is called the IBM symbol. Despite being basically the latest of the seven finalists, like the last one invented, it won because it was technically superior. And that symbol is the symbol we still use today. Those vertical black lines and white spaces that has become this icon of capitalism, this dystopian image in science fiction, tattoos people get. I got a barcode tattoo when my book came out of the book's ISBN. 
Normally I finish a book and I'm like, oh, I never want to talk about this again. But barcodes I loved. And as a sign that I maybe got way too into my research, I did actually teach myself to read barcodes manually. What each of those pairs of lines means and what number they represent. But not off the top of my head because I'm not a total weirdo. The Symbol Selection Committee, they had absolutely no idea how important it would be. Their estimates were that if it was really successful, eventually it would be used in 10,000 stores. No one in any of those meetings was talking about picking a symbol or developing a data standard in 1973 and still scan billions of times a day. Part of the reason they've succeeded this long is that they work fine. They just do their job and they work. They're kind of like a pencil. You don't need a better pencil. Jordan Frith, a very enthusiastic Jordan Frith. Who can read a barcode by himself? He's in Clemson, South Carolina. Coming up. When you win money, that feels naturally good. That's just baked into our DNA. And therein, the risk. But first, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial's down 96 today, about a quarter percent, finished at 37,905. The Nasdaq found 65 points, four tenths percent, 15,425. The S&P 500 added 14 points, nearly three tenths percent. 48 and 64. Megan McCarty Carino was looking at where streaming is headed. Netflix, as we told you, did real well earnings wise. Clicked up more than 1% even before that news. Walt Disney Company raised nearly 1.4% today. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby said the carrier is looking at alternatives to buying a new, bigger version of Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. Those were grounded, as you know, earlier this month after a panel blew out of an Alaska Airlines MAX mid flight. Boeing declined 1.5%. United lifted more than 5% today. Bond prices fell, yielding on the 10-year T-note, 4.1%. You're listening to Marketplace. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. The law of supply and demand applies except when it doesn't. Case in point, a new report from the Real Estate Board of New York about commercial real estate there, retail spaces specifically. It says retail rents in New York in the back half of 2023 were on average 20 to 30 percent below where they were in the before times. Fewer office workers coming in, tourism still down. Makes sense, right? What does not make quite as much sense is that demand for those retail spaces is still pretty high. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more on the paradox of strong demand and soft rents. Retail rents being down 20 to 30 percent doesn't sound like a good sign for a city. But Keith DeCoster at the Real Estate Board of New York says retail is rebounding. Certain parts of the city are doing better than others. 
Some of the retail quarters like Fifth Avenue and Times Square have a little bit more vacancy than they did. Same with other parts of the city that have a lot of office buildings. But in neighborhoods that have a good mix of residential, office, tourism, and retail... We're really busy. Stephen Soutendeck, a retail broker at Cushman and Wakefield, says they're seeing all kinds of businesses sign leases. Luxury brands, coffee shops, clothing stores, restaurants. And according to their data... Availability rates are down to their lowest levels since 2014. So then, why are retail rents still so much lower than before? Soutendeck says he thinks one reason is that landlords saw how their tenants' businesses struggled in the pandemic, and they're worried about raising rents too high too fast. And the second is that money is not as cheap as it was. So I think interest rates have actually dampened a little bit the rent growth. There are also other factors that have nothing to do with the pandemic. Chris Mayer at Columbia Business School says even before, people were shopping a lot more online and less in stores. Frankly, the peak of the retail market in New York was three or four years before COVID. So we were already seeing decreases in rents and leasing activity prior to COVID. And he says it's possible the retail market might be about where it is today, even if the pandemic had never happened. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. The Super Bowl is in a couple of three weeks, February 11th to be specific, in Las Vegas for the first time, which will appeal to the irony-minded among you because it wasn't all that long ago that Nevada was the only state in the union where you could legally bet on the Super Bowl. Six years ago, though, the Supreme Court cleared the way for legalized sports gambling everywhere, and since then, 38 states and the District of Columbia have obliged. Many of them allow betting through mobile apps, which in turn let you roll the dice loosely speaking, on not just the outcome of games, but on individual players' performances and specific events within a game and on sporting events all over the world 24-7. Thing is, of course, that gambling addiction is real, and treatment and prevention just isn't keeping up, as Marketplace's Henry App reports. Say you're at a casino and you hit a jackpot at a slot machine or win a hand of poker. Dr. Timothy Fong, a professor of psychiatry at UCLA and co-director of the school's gambling studies program, says that does something to your brain. When you win a reward, when you win money, that feels naturally good. That's just baked into our DNA. That surge of dopamine is thrilling, and you probably will want to feel it again, so you play another round. If you lose, chances are you'll eventually walk away. But a small percentage of people feel like they can't, Fong says. I've had patients just tell me, you know, I don't know why. I just know that when I'm gambling and when I when I win money, it does something to my body and brain and I feel alive. I feel joy. I feel safe. I feel pleasure. Losing money by chasing that feeling long enough, he says, can have devastating consequences. Bankruptcy, divorce, even suicide. Addiction has always been a side effect of legalized gambling. But up until a few years ago, legal gambling looked really different. We used to say before this, in order to gamble, you had to put clothes on. You had to get up, you had to go out, and now you don't. Diana Good leads Connecticut's Council on Problem Gambling. It's been around since 1980 and operates a helpline, which connects people who have gambling problems with treatment. We've seen a huge increase in calls. A 91% increase in the year after the state legalized online sports betting. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you may well have heard the number for Connecticut's helpline, alongside a bunch of others. 
1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-5-2-4-7. FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM have flooded ad breaks in the last few years on sports shows especially, but others too, including some marketplace podcasts as recently as last summer. And ads for gambling are now ubiquitous in pro sports broadcasts. But why do they have that long, frantic list of disclosures with the helpline numbers for each state? For our nation's history, gambling has been approached on a state-by-state basis. And so, too, have responsible gambling and problem gambling services. Keith White is the head of the National Council on Problem Gambling. It operates its own helpline, 1-800-GAMBLER, that some states use. He says calls to the line nearly doubled between 2020 and 2023, and texts and chats grew even more. Since sports betting is now legal in all but 12 states, White says the state-based approach to treatment is outdated. Just as we don't look at cancer or diabetes or substance abuse state-by-state, We really need to recognize that gambling, too, is something that you have to look at on a national basis. White says the whole system needs more funding. Between January and November of last year, Americans bet just over $100 billion on sports, according to the American Gaming Association. But bookmakers paid less than one-tenth of one percent of that in state taxes earmarked for problem gambling treatment, the AGA says. White argues treatment funding needs to increase more than tenfold. He says the federal government needs to step up, and it already has a way to raise the funds. There is an additional excise tax on every single sports bet placed in the United States. A bill introduced in the Senate earlier this month would give half of the money from that federal tax to gambling addiction treatment and research. White's counsel supports that bill. Some advocates want to see the feds go much further. I think there needs to be uniform protections for consumers across the nation. Mark Gottlieb is director of the Public Health Advocacy Institute at Northeastern University. Late last year, it sued DraftKings in Massachusetts over what it alleged were deceptive advertising practices. Gottlieb also thinks Congress should limit sports betting apps. Things like affordability checks, limits on the types of bets, the number of bets that can be placed during a game. A spokesperson for the American Gaming Association says the gambling industry flatly rejects the idea of federal regulation. But one thing the industry, public health advocates, and treatment leaders agree on, those helpline disclosures need to change. They're working on it. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, two items related. One, for those of you who really want to get your taxes done, tax season this year. That is the date the IRS will actually start processing returns, January the 29th. Item two, for those who thought they were getting the free version of TurboTax but wound up not, this item, the Federal Trade Commission has ruled that TurboTax engaged in deceptive advertising and it banned the company from advertising its services for free unless it is free for all customers, those who work in the gig economy, for instance, and get 1099s and not W-2s. The company, of course, says it is going to appeal. Our digital and on-demand team includes Carrie Barber, Dylan Mietinen, Janet Wynn, Olga Oxman, Ellen Rolfes, Virginia K. Smith, and Tony Wagner. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on-demand. And I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. 
to splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.